0: I never would have imagined that the level of adversity and challenge we face could have led to such meaning. And I just think that is, is such an important reminder for people who are in that time of challenge and uncertainty to process that and realize that you might not see it in, in that moment, but if you can withstand the challenge and continuously be resilient, there are so many opportunities to find meaning.
1: Welcome to the Philanthropy Masterminds podcast, brought to you by Donor Search, the show that takes you inside the lives of thought leaders, innovators, and change makers in fundraising, philanthropy, and civil society. I'm your host, Jay Frost. In this episode, we speak with Adam Pierce, co founder of the Love Your Brain Foundation and one of the top 10 CNN heroes of 2023. Since 2014, Love Your Brain has served and trained more than 35,000 individuals in 31 countries affected by traumatic brain injury through free in-person and online programs. We speak with Adam about the injury that sparked his journey and how the level of adversity we face can lead to opportunities for meaning. When did this journey begin with Love Your Brain?
0: So the journey with Love Your Brain Uh, started nine years ago, but really the journey around TBI started nearly 14 years ago. It was on New Year's of 2009, 2010. Um, It was about three o'clock in the afternoon. We're in Vermont and got a call. We were actually, I just got on a, um, a workout machine and I get a call from a friend. Don't pick it up. Get another call from him. Don't pick it up. The third one, I was like, something's going on. Pick up the call. And he's just like, you know, in tears, basically saying like, you got to get here. Your brother, you know, your brother had, it just had a serious accident. So that was the beginning. Um, it was on new year's night and we got a flight out there that night and yeah, learned that he had a severe traumatic brain injury. Wow. This was where, where did you have to fly off? This was in park city, Utah. Yeah. So he was, it was, uh, he had just come off a year where he pretty much won every contest around the world snowboarding and it mm-hmm. was coming into the Olympics as the favorite. Cause he was just, he was just, he had just beaten Sean White, who was, who was, kind of known as the, the favorite to he had won the previous Olympics. And Kevin was the one person who had beaten him. So he had just come off a year where, yeah, he had beaten him and was just winning. So there was just real momentum. And then, um, he was out with the U S snowboard team at, uh, at, at one of the qualifying events. And that's where the accident happened.
1: I, so you flew out and what was it like for you when you first went and met him? Because you, as brothers, I'm sure we're very close, but you also followed his journey. I get the impression from other uh, stories about your journey that you both were uh, competitive, you know, brothers uh, as brothers often are, um, but there he was. So what, how, how did you react?
0: Yeah. I mean, we were. We were so close, best friends. I mean, he he, he had kind of lived out my childhood dream, um, he you know, and more. So he became this kind of real inspirational figure, not only in what he was achieving, but how he was doing it and how he brought his just everyone a part of it. So I was really close to it. And yeah, showing up to his hospital room was one of the hardest moments I can remember. Um, you know, I walked in, I just remember 30 tubes in him, He looked, he, you know, you couldn't tell who, who it was. There was so many tubes and I just had to walk out of the room and I just burst into tears. Um, So that was a pretty heavy moment. And then the next two weeks, you know, it was really the uncertainty if he was going to live or not. He was in a coma. Um, And then after those two weeks, after he came out of the coma, um, there was just this kind of slow, slow, gradual uh, improvement. And you know, and that's to this day continues to improve. But we were in the hospital; we were in critical care for a month, and acute care for two weeks, and then in Craig Hospital in Colorado for another three and a half months, um, and then came back to Vermont, where he was at Dartmouth Hitchcock for the, you know, for the the next year, pretty much, where we were doing inpatient uh, and outpatient therapy.
1: Had you had any experience with? In this kind of environment with hospitals and care and critical treatment any of that before
0: oh yeah i had my fair share of injuries i ruptured my spleen broke my back broke my heel you know i had many oh. injuries but but nothing to this magnitude i mean this this definitely uh, especially the brain like this was just a whole nother place that we felt like we were um just very unknowledgeable about and um, definitely felt new in that sense
1: yeah, that's that's why I ask because uh, when you encounter anything, and especially if you're encountering it in a place that's unfamiliar, which unfortunately I guess it wasn't unfamiliar to you, no. <laughs> but but uh, but the injury itself was, and so you're kind of in the dark. You, you have to rely on the information given to you. Then you have to evaluate it, figure out well what's the best course of treatment for this person that I love. You're helping that person. That person's making their own decisions to the degree they can. But then you have TBI in the middle of this traumatic brain injury. This is a phrase. Everybody hears, but I don't hear many people defining it. And and perhaps that's because there's so many, there's such a range of different kinds of injuries. But can you talk about TBI a little bit, not just in the context of your brother, but this broader context? What does it mean? What is it? And how have you found ways to think about it and ultimately through your organization to address it?
0: Yeah, I think the most important thing with traumatic brain injury is that everyone is different. Um, And that's really important because people have different symptoms. And you can't treat one the same as another. Um, So, you know, and I think the other important thing to note here is a concussion is a form of traumatic brain injury. And, you know, often there is not a scale in terms of moderate, severe, because it's not necessarily the like the actual hit, the the severity of the hit, because that doesn't always correlate to the to the symptoms. So often we'll see a lot of people with repetitive concussions where you might not even think much of hitting your head. But the reality of what those symptoms are is sometimes just as bad as someone who's had a really severe one.
1: And so in this case, uh, I, I suppose you had to go through that process of figuring out what is this really? How is it impacting uh, my brother? And then what is the course of treatment available to us and, and so forth? And you're there just being his, his friend and his family, as well as is witnessing all that listening, and I'm sure you know weighing in as, as you feel appropriate. So then you, I guess, made your way back, as you said, back to Dartmouth-Hitchcock, which is a tremendous medical center. Um, and then that journey continued. How long was it between that and you're starting to think about, well, the things we're experiencing here... Are experienced by others and so there's there's this kind of thing that we can do so we can uh, also make it possible for others to to take this journey and and uh, have more success in in uh, navigating the world post their tbi
0: yeah that didn't come actually until so two years after his accident we just we were like whoa like you know he has this kind of it, it to many doctors shared like this kind of a miracle healing journey um and just continued to to get better and better. And we were, you know, he clearly was a a well-known figure. Um, so there was just some interest around his story and we started thinking about, yeah, maybe should, we, you know, how do we tell this story? And we ended up making a documentary called the crash reel with, uh, Lucy Walker and HBO. And that really, um, that really was the experience that brought to light the prevalence and complexity of TBI on a global scale. Cause the film went on to win number of awards. It was shortlisted for the Oscars. It, it did a tremendous amount around awareness. Um, but in turn, you know, it brought thousands of people to us saying, what is Kevin doing? How is he, how is he healing? Like, what are all the, the ways in which you guys are going about this? And we were not prepared necessarily for that. So, um, we spent the next couple of years really trying to understand and listen to the stories that were coming to us to say, okay, like what is, uh, what is, you know, what is the area that we can be most effective in supporting these people? And we realized, yeah, awareness was, was not the only thing we felt kind of obligated to do. So that led us to starting love your brain foundation. um, Yeah. In 2014.
1: What kind of work were you doing before that? And, at that time that either um, helped to complement uh, this this origin story of the organization itself or maybe even, you know, caused a little bit of friction as you tried to do two things at once. We often have that experience when we're starting something new.
0: Yeah, there were a number of things that kind of happened in um, in an order that led us to the kind of the area of, of where we found um, Love Your Brain, which was. Kevin went to a yoga class about two years after his accident. And the visible change in him from when he started to when he came out was shocking. Um, it, it really was like, Whoa, the old cat, Ke- like the old Kevin just kind of reemerged after these classes. So there was like an, there was a real intrigue for us in that, in that moment of, Whoa, what just happened there? And then, um, uh, a year after, his, I had spent a year basically after his accident working with him every day in, in rehab, in the hospitals, and, and really trying to help him get back to a place where he could be independent. And a year, the kind of year marker was that time where I realized, you know, I was, um, yeah, we were starting to kind of get into it. I was playing more of a parent role almost than I needed to be. And we just needed some time apart. So I ended up going uh, to India and doing uh, a 10-day Vipassana silent meditation retreat And it was, it was a transformative experience for me because I I started to just see the power of our minds. And as a caregiver, um, I started to really be able to see um, just how I, how I truly, how I thought I had been accepting of who he had, who he was becoming. But in the reality who I was really still, still so held on these expectations of what I wanted him to, to be, which was the old Kevin, which just wasn't which wasn't the reality. So it gave me this huge insight into a lot of my own issues and, and really this, this turn of, of focus of stop, of saying, you know what, I need to stop thinking that everything he, he need like everything that's wrong is, is his fault rather than I got to look at myself and do the work on myself to, to start to work on this, this dynamic. And, and then my wife actually did her, did a yoga teacher training in India. Um, and we, we, started to um, just see what was possible in this space. And the the unique aspects were that it really focused on the whole person. And when you injure your brain, the whole person is compromised from emotional, cognitive, physical, social. Um, And we realized that in terms of Kevin's healing journey, all of those dimensions were being um, focused on from nutrition to the social support, to the emotional space to process. And we just realized, whoa, like there's an opportunity here to, um, to really create something that sees the whole person. And the other piece of information that we kept receiving after the documentary was the most common thing people said is that they felt a sense of isolation. And so for us, seeing the the kind of gap after you leave the medical system which is really important in the immediate phase but our medical system tends to dismiss patients after that uh, that beginning phase and you're really then left on your own and the reality is a lot of people don't have the means to um, to Yeah, have the supportive areas that address all of that. So that was kind of the beginning of our aha moment of saying, well, this is the area we see is 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 absolutely essential to supporting people. And and let's figure out a way to to build um, something that that can help people.
1: The way you were describing the way kevin responded to that yoga class and then also how you went on this journey for silent meditation and then your wife pursuing yoga was this something that that you all knew about before or did you make this discovery as you were living through this
0: yeah we had had um we had had kind of like you know we had a tradition in our family uh, around the dinner table we would we would ring a tr- tibetan singing bell and really the the premise there was was just to be present um you know, as long as that that sound was there. So we had kind of small um, examples of, of some of those touch points, but never to the degree that we started becoming more in tune with um, from these experiences.
1: Is there something that you've seen now as you have continued this process where yoga really helps and yoga and meditation um, it really do help uh, this wide range of people with TBI, and and is there is there kind of a central uh, piece to that, that that makes it so effective as a way to bring people together, in in addition to addressing that isolation?
0: Exactly. Um, so the reality after TBI is your nervous system is 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 really impacted. So the the effectiveness of yoga and meditation at controlling the nervous system, focusing on areas like the breath. Um, and really being able to, to control that is, is like the primary space. Um, but also with meditation and mindfulness, it's, it's so much about cultivating awareness so that we can, you know, often with your awareness is compromised after brain injury. So continuing to cultivate awareness is critical because often people are doing things that they don't want to be. They're saying things they don't want to be. And as you as as you can imagine, like when you when we're talking, we're filtering a lot of how what we're interpreting and then what we're relaying back. And without that cognitive function, you're really just you're it's you're you're you know, you're you're compromised. So um that that is also a big thing. And and for anyone, really, I mean, this is not just around brain injury. I think everyone can benefit from greater self-awareness and um and really looking at this reactive state, we, we become kind of ingrained in, we just, we just react. And often I think meditation can help us pause before we react and and really think about how we're responding to that situation. Um, And, and the reality with TBI is that reaction space can be, become such a circular negative pitfall where it's just negative reinforcing thoughts after another. And that leads to depression. It leads to an incredibly high rate of suicidal ideation, um, compromised relationships, you know, failed relationships—just all of these things that become compromised from that kind of that negative pattern of of thought. So, being able to interrupt that and and create um, skill and 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 opportunity, yeah, to 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 change that is is where our work is is really rooted in.
1: It's it's a it's one thing to. Have an opportunity to explore that personally or even with a family member and the transformation that that could offer. It's another to say, well, I'm going to form an organization, (laughs) invite a lot of people from around the world to participate in it. So, talk a little bit about Love Your Brain itself. What was the origin of the organization? Going from a lot of people just reaching out to you because they saw this great documentary to, can you help us to founding an organization, uh, making these uh, services available? finding the resources to continue it and then bringing it to all the people who might need it. That's, that's a, that's a big leap.
0: Yeah. And, you know, it started as like really a trial experience, which was a retreat we did. It was a five day experience. We brought about 50 people together. And in that group there, you know, the primary was people with traumatic brain injury and caregivers. We brought neuropsychologists, nutritionists, Um, anyone we could think about that could kind of bring a holistic approach to well-being. And we left that week just completely um, kind of shocked in a way, because there was this, there was just this transformational experience where people were, uh, at the time we didn't really know, but over time as we've continued to do them and we've, you know, now led eight research studies and and done a lot to kind of further understand the why behind it. But at that was that was the root of what what started. And then from there, um, we started to think about scale and and all of the things of, of how we could support more people.
1: So where is the organization today in terms of building that scale and where do you imagine it going? What's the vision as you look forward?
0: Yeah, so we have served over 40,000 people um, with brain injury through, yeah, through programs, we're currently serving about 8,000 people a year. And we do that online and in person, obviously before COVID in person was, was a a bigger focus of ours, but the reality of COVID, um, which was really interesting is that a lot of people with TBI said, this is, this is like you, people who are experiencing COVID are now experiencing what it's like to be with, have a TBI from the isolation standpoint. Um, So, you know, and to do the things that we once thought, we always did that were normal and not being able to do those again, I think we could start to kind of put ourselves in those shoes a little bit more. And for us as an organization, we really had to think about, well, how can we, you know, how do we pivot and continue to support the people that need this? And we started to obviously adapt our programs and our curriculums to an online program that ended up being incredibly, uh, effective because the reality with people with TBI is you know all of the stimulation to get in a car to go to a yoga studio and you think about that journey, there's a lot of stimulation in there that can also enhance symptoms. So instead people can now just jump on a Zoom link and feel that 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 connection with others without having to to go to all that trouble. So in the the result of that is we now have you know people from 27 countries coming into our programs, which before was was not nearly that scale. So it's been a really interesting process of of yeah, of kind of what Kevin's story was all about, which was not necessarily focusing on what happened to us, but what are we going to do to move forward in this situation?
1: Right. And that's something that I know a lot of people will get frozen over, whatever their circumstances, whatever their their trial, and then finding um, a mechanism for not only uh, navigating themselves but then with others—that's really tough. In fact, you just made probably the best argument for Zoom I've ever heard. Um,
0: <laughs> <laughs> and you know, one of our one of our big questions in that was the the spaces that we created were spaces where people could be fully themselves. And when you're fully your, yourself, you're incredibly vulnerable. You're incredibly honest. So we really had question: Could we do that over a Zoom call? And, and the reality is that we could. And um, you know, I think we were fortunate as a remote organization before COVID because that that was familiar to us. But really, the, the learnings have been that that you can, with the right models, so create those spaces where people can can tap into that and, and really be transformed in, in that process.
1: Is this something that uh, people can support? I mean, is it entirely supported through fees or are, are other people uh, able to contribute so you can bring the program to more people?
0: Yeah, so one of our one of the big um, priorities at the beginning of this was seeing the cost of the medical bills, which were staggering, and the reality f- for a head injury that it is if it's often a lifelong process, you like it's very unrealistic to feel like you can have the financial means to support that um, all the way. So our our big focus was how do we create access, which means not only the financial access. But also looking at what are the barriers that are limiting people from race to you know all of the different um, intersections that that make it hard for people to access care. So our programs are all free, um, and we we have spent a lot of energy and, and invested time and and money into ensuring that we continue to move the dial and saying where are those uh, areas of of where people face barriers and how do we kind of continuously break those down and, and make sure that people can get to this. So to your question, um, we do, we rely on, uh, we have an amazing community of people who, who contribute donations. We have corporate partners. Um, we have products. We really try to diversify the way we raise money so that we can build a sustainable organization that lasts forever.
1: So, what does this look like to you if, if you look forward five or ten years? I know it's asking a lot because you're still going through this, but you've seen already a lot of change. So, what does that change look like if you were to future?
0: Yeah, care? I think the high level change is like what is the what? How do we how do we shift the the medical care someone rec- the model for for brain health care? That's for us. Like that's the high level overview of okay. If you leave a hospital, don't like we can't just think of hospitals as where rehabilitation takes place um and and over this time we've you know we've done all of our research stems around the idea of resilience um, we don't with tbi often this term recovery is used which is important because it can it can motivate you to want to continue to try to heal but the reality is many times you are a new version of yourself so trying what recovery is referring to you will be Returning to what you once were, and if that's your, if that's the loop that you're going towards, and you're never achieving that, it can be quite um, frustrating and, and challenging. So the idea of resilience is more around like facing what's in front of you and bouncing back, and continuously in that process. And when we started to dig into that research, we started to see that two of the ten factors that make people resilient are. Our community being socially connected to others and mental flexibility. And those are kind of the two areas of of root where mindfulness and yoga really support. And then doing that in a space where you are connected to people who understand, who see you for who you are, who accept you um, and who can support you in a way that, um, yeah, others can't because of the lack of understanding.
1: And that's certainly something that so many people need in their lives, Um, uh, even if they haven't encountered some kind of medical emergency uh, like in your family um it brings me to kind of a final question which is it sounds like uh in your family you were already it, when you were quite young close and mindful uh the way you described the the table and and the tibetan uh bell and being a uh, present for one another sometimes when you go through this kind of journey um, not only uh, the accident itself, but then working together and now forming an organization and bringing it to a lot of people, that can be both wonderful and stressful. How, how has it been for your entire family through this? And and where are you all today as you um, uh, have found your way on the other side of this journey and now are actively engaged in bringing in the solutions you found to many other people?
0: Mm. Well, I think the main message here is that adversity, I mean, I, I never would have imagined that the level of adversity and challenge we face could have led to such meaning. And I just think that is, is such an important reminder for people who are in that, that time of challenge and uncertainty, to be able to process that and realize that you might not see it in, in that moment. But if you can stay, if you can withstand the challenge and continuously be resilient, there are so many opportunities to find meaning. And I think, you know, one of the things that I didn't talk about in, in my childhood, which is, is really important in this in this whole story, is, is my brother David, who has Down syndrome. Um, we I feel so fortunate to have, have him in my life and grown up with someone who has a disability, but for us, it really took on a different You know, the the definition of disability became ability because David had so many, so many things about him that gave us such uh, an ability to to face Kevin's accident. So, so much around just, just patience and acceptance and David's ability to, to connect to his emotional being, um, has has given all of us a framework in how to communicate our emotions and how to be with each other's challenge and and i i just give so much credit to my parents for how they how they supported our family in seeing that and not only seeing it but really celebrating that and and i see those tenets in in the work that love your brain does in so many aspects of what we do
1: the Philanthropy Masterminds podcast is underwritten by DonorSearch, the world leader in donor intelligence solutions. Our producer is Jack Frost. Our theme music is Be My Remedy, composed and performed by House of Say. You can subscribe to the Philanthropy Masterminds podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find blogs, webcasts, and free accredited webinars with
0: our featured masterminds at DonorSearch.net or check the show notes and descriptions.